So I invite you to take a deep breath to feel the chair beneath you, your feet on the floor. And to really be present here in this spiritual community of great love that receives the gift of music every week. Where I know I receive the gift of inspiration and rededication. And I'm always reminded that we live in a beautiful universe. And that life in Edmonton is absolutely fabulous in the summer. It's fabulous in the winter, but we really do appreciate these warm summer evenings and long days. And so with a heart that's open to love, in deep gratitude for the gift of this center, for the gift of this community, for the gift of this wonderful life. I invite you to claim that with me and to release absolutely anything that's not in perfect alignment with an inner peace and a deep joy and gratitude for life. Know that with me as together we say, and so it is. Well, it's always a treat to come and talk to you, and, and it's been a treat to learn about patience. Dr. Patrick has been talking about patience all month, and I've read the book by W.J. Ryan on pa The Power of Patience. The other book I read this, in preparation for this talk was a book by uh, Arianna Huffington, Thrive. It's a book, if I forget to mention it later on, I'm mentioning it now so I don't forget. It's well worth having a look at. Rumi said in the 13th century, your task is not to search for love but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. Rumi also said the thing that you seek is seeking you. Ancient scripture says, knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you will find. That which you seek is already within you. It's the kingdom. Patience is part of the description of love because love is patient and kind. And so if you are working on your patience, one of the things to remember is that patience comes from your heart. It's a quality of kindness and love, regardless of how you're being provoked. I was looking at this story, which I think describes patience in a way. It probably is a story from someone in Asia because of the climate, but a person planted a fern seed and a bamboo seed. And the fern came up in the year it was planted and started to become quite vital and lush. But the bamboo, nothing. The year went by, the fern grew really quite considerably. Another year went by, the fern is looking good. The third year, the fern is lush. Bamboo, seed, nothing. The fourth year, the fern has probably propagated. It's lush and it's probably got some partners. Bamboo seed, nothing. The fifth year, the bamboo, there's a tiny little sprout. 
But within six months, that bamboo is 100 feet tall. The bamboo, in the first five years, is putting its roots into the earth deeply so that it can support itself when it reaches that 100-foot elevation. That can feel like us, can't it? When you're raising a child, maybe when you're in a difficult job, maybe in a relationship sometimes where you feel that you're putting lots of patience and love in it, you're watering those seeds of loving kindness and you're just seeing so little result. I can certainly say, you know, raising teenagers is probably my best example of that where, you know, every day you get up and rededicate yourself to being a very nice, kind, loving parent and give even though you're being perhaps challenged and tested a bit. What I find about spiritual practice is that by doing that spiritual practice in times when there is no hurricane, when life is calm and good, when you're watering the seed of patience and spiritual practice and love, and there's nobody trying to pull it out, your roots actually get very deep. You don't even realize it. But when you get a challenge in your life, that's when you have the test. And that's when you have the proof, too, that this teaching of you are in control of your thinking and you can control what you attract into your life through your thoughts, not because it's magic, but because we become what we think about a lot. We only welcome the things that we're interested in. The things that we dislike, we have learned to give it no energy to not do this tit-for-tat thing anymore, to say that if it doesn't interest me, if I don't want it in my life, I simply turn the other cheek, I look the other way, I talk about what I do want, and in my heart I'm, I'm meditating on my vision for who and what I want to be. Francis de Sales said, have patience with all things, but chiefly with yourself. Do not lose courage by considering your imperfections, but instantly set about remedying them. Every day begin anew. Norm and I were in Southeast Asia a couple of months ago and we were in Taipei and we were looking for some t-shirts. As we traveled, we looked for t-shirts for our teenage grandsons, thinking that that's probably a good choice. And we were looking for interesting t-shirts. We saw this one, it said, I may not be perfect, but I am a limited edition. Our oldest grandson turned 16 this year and in the spring, and he's been talking about getting his learner's permit, and his uncles have been kind of teasing him about it. We have three sons, and he's the son of our oldest son. And uh, we came back from our holiday, and he still hadn't got his learner's permit, but I knew he'd knew he was going to have his test, so I said to him, what's going on with the, with the learner's permit? Uh, have you taken your test? He said, oh, he looked a little sheepish even, and he said, uh, well, Grandma, I've taken it twice, and I flunked it both times. And I thought, this is odd, he very, does very good in school. And I said, well, did they give you a test or questions that aren't on the manual, or are they making it confusing? And he said, Grandma, I've been riding in a car all my life. I shouldn't have to read the manual to take a simple test. <laughs> One of the nice things about giving a talk on patience is 
I know that we teach what we need to learn. And so I've had a couple of weeks of looking at patients, knowing that it's something that interests me and something that I'd like to work on, and knowing that there probably is a manual on the subject. So this morning, I'm going to talk about my research, the manuals that I've found, because I think they're quite helpful, and you can pick and choose the ones that you think are helpful to you. This is what patience means according to the dictionary. Patience is endurance in the face of delay or provocation without acting on annoy with annoyance or anger in a negative way. Forbearance when faced with long-term difficulties, steadfast. Patience, I think, is developmental. And I do think it helps if you have a manual. The Dalai Lama said this, if you can cultivate the right attitude, your enemies are your best spiritual teachers because their presence provides you with the opportunity to enhance and develop tolerance, patience, and understanding. Your enemies. Buddhists say that patience is the highest aesthetic. I looked up aesthetic. I kind of knew what that meant. It means, it's kind of like if you see a sunrise and it's just beautiful. It's artistically beautiful, but it's molecularly beautiful. That's, that's patience. That's why the Buddhists hold that in such high regard, patience. If you look at the banners in this room, you can see why we might use the word aesthetically beautiful. The work of the Dalai Lama leaving Tibet and the work he's done around the world to really be a model for patience. The work of Mahatma Gandhi certainly had enemies and certainly his life was beautiful. I think Martin Luther King is a good example, but the one I'm thinking of this week is it was International Nelson Mandela Day on Friday this week. And I thought, that's beauty. The patience of Nelson Mandela is beautiful. That's what aesthetic means, that kind of beautiful. We all have within us a central place of wisdom, harmony, and strength. Rumi says that everything is rigged in our favor. Marcus Aurelius lived in 150, so kind of 2,850 years ago. And he said this, the quality of our day is up to us. We have little power over what happens to us, but we have complete power over how we respond. It starts with setting expectations that makes clear no matter what the hardship we encounter, how much pain and loss, dishonest ingratitude, unfairness, jealousy, we can still choose peace and imperturbability. And from that place of patience, we can more effectively bring about change. We think we're pretty smart, don't we, right now? That to think that this kind of thinking was around 2,000 years ago is pretty much. There was a philosophy at that time called Stoicism, and that's what Stoicism was really about too, that really taught people that even though they lived at a time when there was really great war and crisis, and people were physically not safe, that they taught people that you have complete mastery over your inner self, that your state of mind is completely within your scope of responsibility, 
and that you can in fact have a very happy life if you learn how to control your thinking and create the life that brings you happiness and joy. That's our teaching. That's the science of our mind that says thought creates. That we live in a universe that operates on natural principles. And that when we understand how the principles of this universe work, we can create a life experience that's happy. Happy not in a pleasure way, but happy in a deep, rooted, bamboo way that says, in the midst of the storm, I can be at peace and know that I am safe. That my inner roots, my spiritual practice, the way that I think about myself and my life gives me that strength and that solid base, that foundation for patience. Well, the other thing I did was I went and looked at, to see what psychology teaches about patience. And I looked in psychology today. And this is what I learned, that patience is something that we can develop an understanding of through education. We need a manual, and there is one. Whether it's the guy that cuts you out in conversation or comes in front of you in line at the grocery store or cuts you off in traffic, whether it's a teenager that speaks back in a way that doesn't feel respectful, whether it's your boss that stole your bright idea and claimed it as their own, whether it's a coworker who's always talking about people and you really are finding that your job is not bringing you a deep satisfaction, regardless of how you're being provoked. It says, do not act in anger. Do not hurt others, do not hang on to anger, and do not hang on to resentment. That's what psychology teaches. Doesn't it sound a bit spiritual? But it's not, it's science. It says that we can be addicted to our anger, our irritation, our blaming, and our shaming. That our emotional ego wants us to look good, get our way, achieve, and is finding fault in others feels a bit delicious. Margaret Thatcher said, I'm extremely patient as long as I get my way in the end. <laughs> I feel a little like that. But we need to upgrade our attitude, psychology says. We need to find a way to step away from the outer occurrences in our life, to recognize when we're starting to feel angry, irritated, to recognize how our body is feeling the minute it starts to happen, to recognize that for most people, you get this clenched in your gut. You get this gut feeling that this is not going well. Then, we usually have a thought. And some people's thought is, I can't tolerate this. The next piece is our ancient brain, our reptilian brain, is triggered. And we flip our lid. And we come from the place within us that's really not our most brilliant and thoughtful. We disconnect from our heart. And we know that patience has a heart position. We lose that position. We're not filled with loving kindness anymore. We're filled with, this has to change. This cannot be happening. This isn't right. This is not for me. And we start thinking from a place where we're not in our wise place. This is our wise place. But we can't be in our wise place until we are completely calm, centered, and at peace. And so patience says, and psychology says, that we need to train ourselves to notice when we're tripped, when we're hooked, 
to have some tools and strategies that remind us that this is not about me and that tells us, do not get hooked, simply breathe. Take a deep breath. Don't get a story going. Don't react. Don't attack. Don't shame and blame. Don't cause pain. Come back to your heart. Be patient. This is just a wave in the ocean of life. It's not real. It won't be here tomorrow. So if people like Marcus Aurelius, if people like Nelson Mandela, if people like Mahatma Gandhi can overcome that trigger and stop flipping their lid and develop deep, deep, deep roots so that they in fact can handle provokeness, any kind of annoyance, even the great big ones from a place of inner peace and calm, so can we. That the seed of that greatness is within us. But remember that the more we use our anger, the more addictive it is. And Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a very well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk, who's an author and a teacher, says that if you feed the seed of anger, it grows. It doesn't matter if you're beating a pillow and screaming when you're angry or whether you're reacting. If you are watering the seed of anger, it grows and it just, you just make it harder for yourself to develop this very calm and openness that patience requires. Patience requires a calm state of being. And that doesn't mean that if you're treated unjustly, unfairly, or if you're working for social justice, that you do nothing. It means that you don't get triggered and so that you're operating from your most wise and strategic place and that in that wise and strategic place you know that it is your heart that's going to move this mountain, that's going to move that position. No matter how brilliant someone is, they can be perfectly right, but you know that if you're not treated with loving kindness as they give you the feedback, there's something that happens to you, the relationship between you. And that can be repaired, but it does take another level of work to get back to the heart and to make that repair. We live in a world where we can be very busy and we can be insensitive, I think, sometimes to what we're doing in our relationships with the people that we care about and the people that we work with and the people that we need to be working with. And that the power of patience is that we, when we connect our heart and our wisdom together, and wisdom really, they say you can't have wisdom without your compassionate heart being open. When we connect all those things, we are really bringing our full power and abilities to the table to negotiate a bigger idea of what we want in life. There's been a really nice, interesting group of articles in the Edmonton Journal lately, and it's kind of about meditation, but it's kind of about thinking. It's also about kind of our busy world. One of the articles was um, about a group of 200 college students, and the scientists were from Harvard and West Virginia University, and they brought 200 students into rooms that were completely boring, 
and they asked them to sit quietly and let their thoughts, only their thoughts, entertain them for 15 minutes. The result wasn't good. They didn't like it, they didn't do well, and they didn't follow the directions well. So then they thought, well, they'll get people from a church and people from a farmer's market. They'll get people from maybe the age of 17 to 77. Did the same experiment. Sit and let your thoughts entertain you, do nothing else. They didn't do well either. Very much the same kinds of results. So then they gave them some nice things to do. They were distracted by nice things, but they still didn't do really well, letting their thoughts entertain them. Then they said, well, let's just really try this out. They said to, to another group, okay, you can, we want you to sit quietly, do nothing but think, let your thoughts entertain you, but we will let you listen to a scraping knife. There's a button you can hear a scraping knife. Or you can give yourself a small shock, about the amount of shock that you'd have if you walked across your carpet and touched somebody. You know, it kind of hurts. They all said that they would rather pay $5 and get that shock. But when they sat them by themselves and let, them, let their thoughts entertain them, 25% of the women gave themselves at least one shock. 66% of the men gave themselves a shock, and one guy gave himself 900 shocks. <laughs> I do think this is really more about not having the manual of what to do when you're sitting alone and someone tells you to let your thoughts entertain you. If you came to this center and you came to our pre-service meditation and you were taught to meditate a bit and you had a container to put that in, you would probably revert to meditating. If you had a mindfulness practice, you would probably focus on your breath. You might even choose your thoughts very carefully to say, what a gift this is to have this time, to just sit here and think, thank you God, and here's what I'm going to think about. But no, these folks, 83%, really struggled with it. Even at home, they said they cheated. They got up and walked around, they listened to their iPhones, they plugged in their music, they just couldn't stand doing it. There's been actually thousands of pieces of research on this subject around paying attention and being able to do nothing. And there's a study that was just done in 2012, I think, that was involved 10 million people. And they, the, the study showed that people became impatient in two seconds as they were waiting for their video game to load up. If you had a really fast computer, you became impatient much quicker waiting for your video game to, to uh, load up than if you had a very slow, archaic computer. Then you had just a little bit more patience. Isn't that interesting? In this time and age when we are just working so hard and doing so much, it seems surprising to me. There's been studies, though, about how important it is to do mind-wandering. That's what they're calling it, mind-wandering. Because we're so busy and we're doing so much, they're saying that really we've always had this time where we could sit and reflect on our life. It's the time when, when I lay in bed, I think about my day. How did I behave today? If there was something that I feel I didn't do real well about, I think about that. And I even rehearse maybe how I could have said that differently or done that differently, or maybe I even commit myself to go back and try that one again and make a repair around that. I think about, what would I really want to do with my life? What's, where, where am I missing the boat? 
Uh, I might think about my childhood, say, well, this thing in my childhood, I'm still fussing about it. You know, I'm going to rewrite the script of that. I'm going to make up a story about that piece to get rid of that. I'm going to plant a whole new seed and water it. I just need a new story about my life. I'm going to say, hmm, I've got this habit I keep coming back to. I really want to break it. You know, I've been telling myself I'm going to lose that five, ten pounds, but no, I keep on loving the food that we're making and saying, well, it's summer. I've just got to eat all this great food. Do you have this? I have this commitment that I'm going to really be walking out in nature and let myself get the bath of the forest and be rejuvenated. And my daughter-in-law phones to say, do you want to go for a walk? And I said, oh, I can't. I'm working on a talk. <laughs> it's really important for our mental health, scientists say, for our well-being, for our happiness, for our, the cells of our body to be healthy, that we do mind-wandering and that we honor it as something valuable that we're doing. There's also something that, there's, there's lots of opportunities nowadays to do mind training, mindfulness training of when you walk in the forest, you're present to the forest. You're not thinking of everything else on your to-do list. When you're looking at a flower, you're present. You're actually looking at a flower. When you're triggered by someone, you're actually present enough to realize you feel pain and that something hurts and that you really now need to take a breath or you're going to be in a story and then you're going to say something, and then you're going to be hurting the relationship, and then you're going to be laying in bed worrying about it, and then you'll have to go back and apologize. It takes a lot of work to screw up. You might as well just you know, be mindful. And that's what mindfulness training is, to say life is so much richer when we are truly present in the moment with who we are, whose we are. When we look at our children, we actually see our children, and we're not multitasking and sort of missing the conversation where they finally just give up and walk out of the room because you know mom's on the phone or she's on the computer or she's cooking over here all those things are telling us that we really need some spiritual practices because if we don't have spiritual practices that do those things I'm calling them spiritual practices but really they're just good healthy practices if we don't have some of these things going on in our life we can lose our way and start to think that work is who we are or that's really all about the money, or it's all about our position, when really it's really about our relationships, it's really about what's happening inside us, in our inner self, that developing of patience. Ariana is a great example of this. Ariana Huffington, do you know her from the Huffington Post? Rich, famous, beautiful, working long, long hours to start that, mag or that online magazine, I guess I'll call it that newspaper, really. She worked herself to the point that she passed out, fell, broke her cheekbone, had to get stitches in her eye, and almost lo or on her cheek, and almost lost her eye. Um, and from that, she's written this book, Thrive, where she just gives these, a multitude of wonderful quotes and all kinds of examples, and she's really trying to turn her life around, and even though she's got this high-pressure job and success is important to her and doing a good job is, she's recognizing that she really can't keep it all together. Research is showing us that the people who are the, the really great sports people, music, uh, the best in music, art, they work about four hours on average a week. And they find that if they work more than that, they start to have either physical stress problems, if they're athletes, they start to have stress problems with their bones and muscles, but they start to burn out as well. And yet, I don't know about you, but I, I think that for me, I often think that I need to drive myself 
that I should be able to pay attention to this, I should be able to focus on this for longer. But Ariana said that the studies actually show that you can focus on something intensely for about 90 minutes, and then you need to give yourself a break. Go for a walk, have a coffee, go and talk to somebody, let your mind wander. That the studies are very clear that we are not productive when we're doing this kind of work, and we're working these kind of hours. That our productivity goes right down. 25% of American big corporations are now finding rooms for people to meditate in, right as part of their work. They give them meditation time. They, they have a nap room. Some of them have a nap room. Ariana's got a nap room in her office. So I think we are starting to get it. Some of us are starting to get it, that to have patience with each other and to be patient with ourselves, to be productive, that we've actually got to have some downtime. We can't fill our life with all this busyness that we're filling our lives with. Every day the world will drag you by the hand yelling, this is important and this is important and this is important and each day it's up to you to take your hand and put it back on your heart and say, no, this is important. One of my favorite gurus is Jack Kornfield. He is a Buddhist monk. He was trained in Thailand, Vietnam and Cambodia and a bit in Myanmar, which used to be called Burma. He's an ordained monk. He came back to the United States, still was struggling with his childhood memories and his patience. And so he did a PhD in psychology. And now he's combined the two. And I think he's one of the people that I have seen that, that so many of the people now, like um, the Dalai Lama, um, people who work, the Gottmans who work with couples, that so many people are uh, working with Jack Kornfield because he has such wonderful Eastern and Western practice that is in such interesting um, balance. It just feels so complete. And he writes about this. He said that he, his dad died and he was going to his father's funeral and he was on a train from Philadelphia, from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia, where the funeral would be. He just happened to sit beside a really interesting young man who worked in the inner city in Washington. And he was, uh, his work got a federal grant to work with young men who were in trouble with the law. Many of them were in prison. And he said, this man said to him, yeah, it, his work is, is challenging and it, is, it can be stressful and it can really stress his patience. But he said that he, there's a young guy named Jessica Key and at the age of 14, he shot another boy that he didn't know and he shot the boy so that he could qualify to be in a gang that he wanted to be part of. That was the initiation rite. He was arrested and convicted and at his sentencing trial the young man, just a young kid who was shot, the mother of that young boy stood up and shouted, I'm going to kill you. The boy went to jail and after he was in jail for a couple of years that same mother came to visit him. She had a short conversation but as she left she said to him, do you need anything? Like cigarettes, money? She came back in a couple of months visit him a little bit and over the course of many years she continued to visit. The young boy was ready for parole at the age of 17 and she said to him, do you know what you're going to do when you get out? And he, the boy said, I really have nobody, I don't have a family, I don't have any idea and I don't have anybody. And she said, well I have a friend who has a little manufacturing company, I'll see if he's got a job for you. 
She talked to the parole officer and she talked again to the boy when it was time to get out and she said, do you have a place to live now? She had him a job. He said, no, I, I don't have any place to live. And she said, well, you know, I've got a spare room. You can come and live with me. And so he did. And so they lived together for six months and then she said to him, you know, I need to talk to you. You know, do you remember the day when you were sentenced and I said to you, I'm going to kill you? And he said, I remember it very well. And she said, well, you know, I have. I could not stand the thought of this world having a young man in it that could actually kill someone that he didn't know. And so I decided to set about to change that young man. But you know, I'm alone. My son really was all I had. And so now I need a son. Would you consider being my son and letting me adopt you? And the young man said, yes. The man who worked with youth on the street, young men that kill other young men as a rite of initiation, has got to be a very tough job. I'm sure he's provoked a lot. But he said to Jack, just having one of these stories once in a while is all I need to persevere and be patient in the work that I do because I know that miracles can happen. When we remove the barriers from our heart, we realize that patience and love has really been there all along that we actually are rooted in our goodness, in our love for others, in our ability to forgive. We do have the ability to transform whatever happens in life. If you look at these banners, you can see the people who've walked that path, human beings like us, who face great adversity. The human heart operates from these two premises, I am responsible, and only love works. It might need, mean that we have to give up a practice that's not working for us anymore, our anger, revenge, maybe our competition. But Mark Nepo says that when we give that up with reverence and compassion, because it no longer works, we do it in order to stay close to the sacred. So as we close, I invite you to close your eyes and I'm going to read you some poetry. Breathe into your heart. Remind yourself that that is where compassion lives in you. Adopt the pace of nature. Her secret is patience. Nature does not hurry, yet everything is accomplished. Do you have the patience to wait until your mud settles and the water is clear? Be patient with yourself. Be patient enough so that all of the understanding that you're seeking will ripen. For emotions that come from all over the place, from the sky, from the starry night, from the earth, from a scrap of paper, a passing shape, 
or a spider's web with that drop of rain and sunlight sparkling. So patient that you can hear the blessings dropping their blossoms all around you. We are visitors to this place. We're just passing through. Our purpose here is to observe and to learn and to wonder and to grow in patience, to open the door to our heart and to know then that we are home. In this moment, I open the door to my heart and the divine in me sees that divine in you. And I remember the truth that we're one. Namaste.